This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max in the road to 100. Now, I've been looking for this man for a long time and looking up to him um, over the past five years and um, especially while I've been doing this podcast. Um, and with SEN, it's Gerald Waitley. Gerald, I'm, I'm a bit in awe to have you on um, on the show. Um, it's an absolute honour to have you on. How are you? I'm well, Max. Thank you very much for having me. I've had a little look through the, the list of the people that you've had on and I've listened here and there, so I'm honoured to be on your list. Thanks, Jared. Now, I'd like to sort of start off with your childhood and, you know, what was growing up like for you? We were a, a sports-rich family, so footy, cricket and racing were, were my three sports growing up and, and Dad taught me all of those. We would go to we would go to the three of them. Uh, my earliest memories are going to the footy with Dad. Uh, I grew up in Mulgrave, so our closest venues were VFL Park in those days and Sandown Racecourse, uh, so I was routinely at both. Uh, I played a bit of cricket, not to any great level, uh, but yeah. yeah, I had a great passion for sport. We were we were readers of the Sun, which was the forerunner to the Herald Sun, and we would always start at the back page first. Yeah, sports section. Yeah. Now I've heard that, and and I know that you're a bit of a Star Wars fan. Can you yes. tell me about this? Yeah. So. Uh, they're still my favourite movies, and it's one of my great joys to have passed those on to my son, Benji, now, who's nine, uh, and he loves them. Actually, he loves the Marvel movies now, so that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a really strong connection for us. But, yeah, so the first movie I saw at the cinemas was The Empire Strikes Back. Mum took me to that. And I don't think, Max, kids these days fully appreciate what a shock it was when we learnt that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's yeah. father. It is hard to convey to you uh, what a shock that was to a young lad. And then I remember uh, having a, a birthday party at Return of the Jedi as mum and dad um, took me and my mates to see that, uh, whichever year that was. So that was when I was still at primary school. So those, yeah, they were, they're my go-to movies that connect me to my childhood. I had the Star Wars posters on the wall uh, and I still love all things Star Wars, so I'm I'm unabashed about that. Now you were writing for the Herald Sun um, about movies in the HRT yeah. magazine. Um, so what really grabbed your attention uh, in that sort of field instead of going into the sports yeah. straight away? So it was a bit strange, if I'm honest, Max. I don't think I had any great ambitions to be a, a movie writer, but. Uh, I did a cadetship at the Herald Sun, like Craig Hutchison spoke to you about a, a little while ago, yep. and that was a little bit of everything. Uh, so I wrote the I wrote for the Weekly Times, went to the cattle sales and learnt that, and did the five wow. point, which is the sports results in the sports pages, and a whole suite of things. And then I was asked to uh, write movies for Hit, and I was the editor of the section. And so my role was to write the articles about the movies and then I hired Lee Patch to be the reviewer. Uh, and it was it was an incredible time. So it was before Gold Class. Yeah. So my job was to go four or five times a week to a private cinema to watch the latest releases that were coming out 
And then because it was the Herald Sun and it had such clout, I was flown around the world to go and interview people connected to these movies, which the clear highlight was interviewing Steven Spielberg for Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. And that was because the Herald Sun, it was the paper to be in in the Southern Hemisphere and it, it syndicates obviously around the country. So I did that for a few years and it was it was so much fun. Like, that's not a real job, is it, Max? It was so much fun, but it wasn't real. And yeah. I always had an ambition towards sport. So I loved doing it. I was in my early 20s. Um, it was sort of surreal in a way. And I got to interview all of these crazy famous people. So I, I have this great answer whenever I'm asked, who's the, fa- who's the most famous person you've interviewed? And I can land Steven Spielberg and I feel like I win the competition yeah. almost every time. <laughs> so what's that like when you're up there chatting to Steven Spielberg? I mean, he's such a world famous name. Yeah. And he was a big figure of my childhood. Yep. So I'm I'm a child of Jaws and E.T. And so I'd done a lot of work, but I was young. I, I would have been 21 or 22 and I looked young. So you were always a little bit in the hands of the person you were interviewing as to whether they took you seriously or not. But I had a good body of work at home and uh, my writing was quite good. So that's how you would get the interview and thus Spielberg would have known. So he's young, but we think this is a worthwhile interview. So we had an hour in a in a hotel suite in London, wow. uninterrupted, just the two of us. And I'd done all the research. I'd read the books. I'd seen all these movies, which is a great head start. My memory of it is that we had a great conversation and it allowed me to write a piece that was really satisfying. Uh, it, it came from my passions and I think it probably did justice to, to our conversation and to, yeah, to make it worthwhile. So what experience did that, you know, movie field give you heading into sports not a lot yeah there's not a lot in common but I worked did that help you with your writing though yeah so uh, above all I love words so writing uh, and then the use of words in um in radio and television you know that that's that's what I most enjoy about it the challenge of it the creativity of it the breadth of it like the language is such a great thing is Mm. try to use as much of it as possible so it, it did it it gave me a great outlet to write and long pieces. So the magazine pieces I would write, um, you'd interview Jack Nicholson and you would write a four page feature. So that's a lot of words and Spielberg, you'd write six pages. So it was a great outlet to, for long form writing. And then uh, I worked a sixth shift uh, in my time at the Herald Sun. So I would work sport on the sixth day. So I would do my, whatever it was, Monday to Friday roster or, and then I would work an additional day covering the footy or the races and write that for the Sunday Herald Sun. So I had the, and I had a very clear ambition to get towards sports journalism, but I wasn't in a rush to get there. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the breadth of experiences that you could have along the way. And I, I think learning politics and, business and police rounds held me in really good stead for when you take on uh, sport in a full-time capacity. So I had that running in the background and I was doing enough to service that and to progress and to open up future opportunities. Um, Yeah, so there was a bit of a a lark around the movie side of things and I kept the sport running in tandem. Just quickly going back a bit, I want to have a quick chat about school and what was 
studying at university like for you? Yeah, so I didn't go to uni. I got a wow. cadetship straight out of school. Yep. And I think it was the last year they took. They took a couple of us at the Herald Sun who were year 12 students coming out. So this was, you know, this was the job that I, I wanted to be in media. No, I wanted to be a journalist or a lawyer. And I did the tests. They, they sat a test at the age and at the Herald Sun uh, late in the year. I did the age test first and I wasn't very good at that. We weren't an age family and my breadth of knowledge wasn't politics and business. It was very heavily sport at that stage. And I wasn't going to do the Herald Sun yeah. test. It was on Cox Plate Day. And mum said to me, no, you should. Yeah. Drop, drop me and then you could go to Mooney Valley after you've done the test. Okay, So I went and did that and... That test made a lot of sense to me because we'd been a Sun, Herald Sun family. Uh, and I must have done well enough at that to get an interview, which was um, at the, it was the Friday of the, after the Melbourne Cup, um, did an interview with the editor-in-chief at that stage, whose name was Piers Ackerman. He loved horse racing and part of my uh, portfolio of year 12 writing was horse racing. I got in, I think we had a 15-minute interview we spoke a little bit of racing what was happening at Flemington the next day he took a phone call said goodbye and I went down and got in the car with dad and dad said how did it go I said I, I have no idea we, we spoke racing swapped tips for tomorrow and then he took a phone call and then I was out and then I got offered the job the following week so I've always thought I must have tipped a couple of winners yeah <laughs> on that Flemington card the next day that just did enough to to get me a chance so yeah I started I'd, I had the job before year 12 results came out and I had started work before uni offers came out. So that sort of settled it. It was, it was journalism for me. So then a lot of people talk about having a university degree, especially in sports media and journalism, next to your name. Is that uh, absolutely crucial for a successful career in media? So I'm, I'm, my experience is no, yeah. Max. Yeah. But that, so the world might have been a little bit different then. Mm. So my view is... Um, so you would do you would do the university degree to get the cadetship. Yeah. I yeah. circumvented that through sheer dumb luck and got the cadetship first. Uh, so I learnt on the job at the Herald Sun across three years. It was an excellent program and gave you experience in a whole lot of things. And I think my view of media is once you're in, you're in. So land the first job and then work that ferociously to get the second job and do the same to get the third job and take aim at the job you want and go get it by working at it. So that's my view of media, which I don't know whether that's really practical, but it seems to me, and you're the poster boy for this, is there are so many opportunities to self-publish now is that you can build a portfolio that may very well be superior to the learning that's done. So... Uh, yeah, I'm a big one for get stuck in and get working. Um, and I don't feel like not having a university degree has ever been an impediment to me. Now, I want to quickly talk about how did you get that opportunity um, at the ABC to do some weekly segments here and there? Yeah, so that actually came through the movies. Um, Derek Gill, who was doing the afternoon show, they asked me to come in and do video reviews. So they had a movie reviewer, but that, that was a time where Blockbuster and Video Easy, this is a whole nother world for you, yeah. Max. You, <laughs> these are redundant businesses uh, by the time you've come along. Um, so, yeah, mo uh, videos were a big thing. So I would go in with Derek and review the new release videos. 
which would be about oh, 12 to 14 months after they'd been in cinemas. So that was my first experience in radio, but it did let me get to know some of the people at the ABC. I'd done work experience at the ABC when I was in year 10 in the sports department with um, with Greg Miles, the race caller, and Tim Lane and Peter Booth. And we wow. grew up in the same neighbourhood as Clark Hansen, who was a, a, call, a great caller and a source of inspiration that, okay, so if this is a legitimate career path and we know somebody who's doing it. So I always had an eye towards there, but that's how it started. It started as a video reviewer. And then once I took the job as the footy reporter at Channel 10, um, I was offered the opportunity to go and join the ABC on the weekends as sort of their news guy in their broadcast, in their pre-match. Yeah. Uh, which was yeah, and so that's the that's the start of my electronic experience in sport. So when you got offered that job at Channel Ten, was there a decision point for you where you had to choose between the movie side of things and sport, or was it always just going to be, you know, I'm I'm going into media to do sport? No, well, I thought I would just write. I thought I would work in newspapers. Uh, I had never considered television. Yeah, but I always watched. So when I was growing up, Channel 10's news and its sport was, that was the place. That was Eddie Maguire, Bruce McAvaney, Peter Donegan, Stephen Quartermain. And they would have, it felt like, 12 to 14 minutes of sport every night. And they were everywhere. They, they were at training. So that's what I would voraciously take in. Um, and I never imagined that I would, and I got offered that job. Yeah. And I, the, the. The quick decision maker was I couldn't sit there and watch Channel 10's news for the next X amount of years knowing that I could have done that job. I was offered that job. So I'd never thought about television uh, and there was a bit to learn uh, and Craig Hutchison taught me a bit about um, screen presence and voice, wearing makeup. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was quite a big decision, but it was actually an easy decision. And I spoke to Mike Sheen at the time and he said, if you come into this Herald Sun football department, you'll be sixth in the pecking order. And that in terms of, you know, building contacts and covering stories, if you take the job at Channel 10, you'll be the chief footy reporter on day one. And that will open up, it will rapidly open up the, the pathway for you. And that's precisely how it panned out. So now you wrote in depth features, um, with the Herald Sun and things like that, um, and had access to guys like Wayne Carey and Damian Oliver. Can you tell me a bit about this? Yeah. So when I was, this was the blend of um, entertainment writing and sport. So uh, I'd been the editor of Hit Magazine and they started the new Sunday magazine. And they brought me into that as as a feature writer. And my strengths at that stage were entertainment and sport. So you could write. Uh, just like I wrote the entertainment features across four pages or six pages, I then started to write sports features. Uh, and they, they were, they were sort of key moments for me as the, the Damien Oliver interview, uh, interview and story, I, I think back with great affection on and Wayne Carey wasn't doing much media at that stage. It was a fractious period of his career, but he agree, agreed to do that interview. And it was a, a cover story coming into a, into a fresh season and there was a lot of depth to that is, is my memory of the discussion. So, and one of my favorites was I interviewed Bruce McAvaney, who was my idol growing up and wrote a lengthy feature, um, about his experience. So that was after the 96 Olympics is, uh, what was it? 2000. 
No, I think it was before 2000. So it was the nine, after the 96 Olympics, and that was with an eye toward Kathy Freeman. Uh, I think she just won a world championship and the eye towards Sydney. So, yeah, I honed a lot of my um, sport material there and worked the day and worked for the Sunday Herald Sun at the the footy and the races and the cricket as well. So I was um I was building experience in sport, but probably a bit more than that. I was building a profile in sport so that when Channel 10 was looking for replacements for Craig Hutchison and Anthony Mithen, I was just enough on their radar to be offered that position. Now when you've got guys like Wayne Carey who aren't actually doing um and especially in that period of his career too in uh, who aren't actually doing a lot of media coverage and, or getting a lot of media coverage, does that give you a bit of leeway into other jobs too? Um, I think uh, it, it meant that the story was well read. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine, thinking back on it, is that wasn't the easiest interview to land. And I, I can't remember the circumstances. But I, I think that would give that, yeah, it, you, you go, okay, that, that's that's interesting that this person got that interview and then – you, uh, by working um, on Saturdays at sporting events, you would get to know people. And it is an industry is getting to know people is one of the most important things mm. because you can advertise a job and get mm. 60 applications and have no real context or you can go, oh, I came across this person. I like this person's work and this is how I would deal with it now. Is So who's doing good work that I've come across um, and who have I seen on the beat? So I was doing just enough of that to, to attract uh, the attention when people were looking f- to fill positions. Now, at the at Network 10, you were named um, the Network 10 Young Achiever as well as the 1999 Young Journalist of the Year. Do you remember this? I do remember uh, the, the Young Journalist of the Year award was at the Quills and Caroline Wilson was one of the judges. Wow. Uh, so that, that carried a bit of weight because um, my work had... Um, had caught her attention. So, yes, I, I do remember that. I, I remember the night. I remember speaking with Caroline afterwards and there was sort of affirmation in that. Okay, if that's – if she thinks I'm doing a good job, then that's encouragement to to persist and work hard and, and see what I can make this. So, yeah, that, that was – some of some awards, Max, as you'll learn over the years, they're – their vanity projects. That one had, that one had a lot of meaning to me. Now, when you've got Caroline Wilson there, what was happening, um, and what did that do for your career in the aftermath of that event? Yeah, it helped. It certainly grew my confidence. So the move to TV was not planned, and I was I wasn't quite sure whether I would be able to make it or not. I don't feel like I have the look for television, and I certainly felt it had insecurities around how I sounded. So it was really all based on what was the quality of journalism that I could do. And yes, is that was, that was affirmation that I was, uh, my work was to a certain standard. It was probably encouraging for channel 10, who I, I think took a risk, um, putting me in that position. And then it helps grow your, your seniority both. And it's almost self-fulfilling is, uh, as your work, gets better, you get better access and thus the capacity to sort of cover better stories. Yeah. Um, if that, I'm not quite sure that makes sense, but yeah, there's a self-fulfilling element to it. The better you get at it, the better opportunities you get at it, the better your work is. Yeah. So then you had the 2000 Olympics. I think that might've been your first Olympics. What's that experience like 
your first Olympics and it's especially it's on home soil. Yeah. You know, you're calling it, it's in Sydney. What's that like? So I was with Channel 10 and we weren't rights holders. So I yep. was a, a news reporter at that. And I actually got the drugs beat. Uh, I'm yes, not quite yes, sure. So my first, the first part of it was doing the arrivals into the country. So you would stake out the airport and uh, international athletes would come through. Because that got coverage for, that got like one of the best news stories of the year, didn't it? That got one of those kind it, of things. It might have. Um, but the drugs beat in Sydney was immense because there were weightlifters from Europe who got busted bringing in essentially anabolic steroids and got sent to court by customs officials, sort of separate to the Olympic setup. And we were in a court. I, my memory is in Western Sydney. And the I, I won't give the country because I can't exactly remember, but a, yeah. <laughs> the, the weightlifting coach from an Eastern European th- is talking through an interpreter, trying to explain why these vials of banned substances were in his luggage. And without a word of a lie, Max, he took off his toupee and exposed his bald head, and the interpreter said, these drugs are to help him grow his hair back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And then it was CJ Hunter. Again, my memory mightn't be precise here, but CJ Hunter tested positive to drugs at the Games. He was married to Marion Jones, and that was a massive story, and that was my beat. Anything drugs-related at those Sydney Games was my beat, and that was the biggest press conference I'd ever seen. And it had all sorts of implications, which were denied at the time, but I think history will will tell you what was going on there. So uh, I got to go to some events uh, after work, which is a really fond memory, but my my Sydney Olympics experience was covering the drug beat. Now, I wanted to have a quick talk about Seven News. That was sort of when they were coming in on the scene as a AFL dominant, um, taking the broadcast rights over from Channel 10. You came in as the chief reporter. Yeah, so yeah. Can, how do you remember that um, job opportunity coming about? Yeah, so a couple of people I'd worked at, uh, I'd worked at Channel 10 with, went to Channel 7 to, uh, I think, to remodel their newsroom. Mm. And they brought me across to be the chief reporter. So not sport, but general news reporting. Um, and it was a fractious time at Channel 7. And it, it, it was pro- like, it was like uh, live or die, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And the new breed uh, clashed with the old breed. So I was vaguely caught up in that without being a really active participant of it. But I was emblematic of the change that they were trying to make. Um, subsequent to moving to Channel 7, I think I was only there for six weeks. Wow. Um, so I, <laughs> I'll give you my vanity <laughs> story. Um, so I, one of the report, I did a, an investigative piece inside that six weeks, which ended up winning the a new story of the year at the Quills, but I was long gone from Channel 7 at that stage. Mm. Channel 10 got the AFL rights almost as soon as I arrived at Channel 7. And I, my memory is I'd been working there a couple of weeks when when I met with Channel 10 and they asked me to come back to be part of their AFL coverage. Is they'd got the rights, they wanted their news to stay to the level that it had been and they wanted me to join the broadcast team. Yeah. Um. There's an extra quirk in there, which so I was I think I was, should have signed a two year contract with Channel Seven, and right at the end they changed it and just asked me if I would sign a rolling contract with a twelve week termination clause. Yeah. Uh, so I did. I you know I didn't know any better at that stage, and that meant that I could resign at any time. So after six weeks, I did resign, 
And one of the great joys of life, Max, is you will find in this industry is there's a thing called garden leave where you get paid by one organization to not work for While a period the other of time organization, before yeah. you're allowed to go to that. So I had garden leave on Channel 7 after about six weeks and then went back to Channel 10 to be part of their foundation AFL team. Now, you had another award for the most outstanding news report, news report, um, and it was also your first season calling AFL on 10 um, and the ABC. How did you find your first experience in the first match of actually calling an AFL game? Yeah, terrifying, terrifying. So I had done, um, at that stage, there were Had you called any other previous sports yeah, by that stage? Yeah, so it was at a time where there were a lot of spare radio boxes at the MCG on any given day. So it's, wow. not, lo- it's not... It's not like today. No, nah, there, there just weren't as many stations calling. So a few of us who had ambitions to do it would go to the footy every week, set up a broadcast team for real and do it. As, and we cut our teeth that way, which was the best experience that you could possibly get. And everybody out of that got opportunities and then you sort of sink or swim after that. But so I, I had probably done a season or a season and a half of phantom calling. And my advice to anybody who ever asks is, you have to get an opportunity, but when you get the opportunity, you have to be ready because if you're not ready and you go in and call a game and you're no good at it, you'll never get a second game. So I got myself to a point where I was ready to call. And then uh, I think Tim Lane asked me one day after we'd done our pre-match is, do you have ambitions to call? And I said, yes. And I, I think he asked me, are you ready to? And I said, I am. And I reckon the next week I called a game back into Adelaide and it was at Princess Park. It was Melbourne and Adelaide. I called with Roger Wills, who was the South Australian caller, much loved South Australian caller. And it was, um, it was a vaguely terrifying, but absolutely thrilling experience. And I went into the ABC the following week and they listened to the, um, to the recording and I have probably called every week since. So do you have a preferred sport? Uh, I guess to record whether that's horse racing, cricket, AFL. So um, I love them all, which which is a little bit of a selfish answer. So footy, cricket and racing were my three sports growing up and yep. they are still my three yep. sports. And I love the Olympics and I have added NFL to that. So uh, that they're so different. Is Is footy is nonstop action from the moment you start, where even in the worst game, the best moment can can be produced. Cricket is a a long, ponderous conversation with spikes of action when they bowl the ball and something happens. And horse racing is uh, um, the most immense test of concentration from the moment it starts to the moment it finishes. And there's nothing quite like that. So those are my three bread and butter sports, vastly different. And I love the opportunity to do them all. So when did you come into the scene and you know, put your, the NFL actually on that list. I saw on your Instagram you were over there and I heard on SEN that you were calling the Super Bowl this year. That What was that like to be there? Yeah, it, the Super Bowl is incredible. So part of um, Craig Hutchison's pitch to me to come to SEN was, would you like to call the Super Bowl? Yeah. And I think we both have a similar version of that story where we haven't <laughs> quite told each other everything. Is At yeah. that stage, he didn't have the rights to it. Uh, and... That, did that, you did you know that? Uh, only subsequently. Yeah. So we laugh about yeah. that now, and I still think he hasn't told me the whole yeah. story. And <laughs> I think he was leveraging me to get the rights from the NFL 
uh, and it was one of the key reasons I'd come across. So anyway, it all happened very late in the piece in a December and the, the Super Bowl was at the end of January. Uh, it was in Mini, Minneapolis uh, and it was, uh, it was in my first week actually. So I started on a Monday and the following Monday I was calling the Super Bowl on SEN. It was, it was one of the, the great experiences wow. of my life. It was um, when the Eagles beat the Patriots and I've now called, I've called five, I've been there for four and the biggest day of sport I've ever been to was the one in Los Angeles earlier this year, the SoFi Stadium, the local team, the Rams won. Um, and it's it's nearly the most fun I have all year is getting to call the Super Bowl. It's it's so much, it's so brilliant. Now you've had a couple of other awards, um, specifically recently. I told you um, these are all vanity things. No, no, mate. but I, I know they're vanity <laughs> things. But I'll have a quick chat about this one: the Media Football Award, um, the Alf Brown Trophy in 2015, 2017. Did that have any weight attached to that in terms of, um, you know, knowing you're you've made it? Um. It's a, uh, what's the best way to, uh, it, it's a reflection of um, the breadth of work that you do across a year and the standards that you set. So I now am at a point where I'm my best judge as to whether You're I've had a good show, whether I'm having a good week, whether you've had a good month, whether you've had a good season. Uh, so I know the standards that I would like to hit. And then when you do it consistently enough, you can put together quite a good five minutes as a representation of my eight months work. Yeah. <laughs> and if I'm doing a good job, that, that five minutes probably sounds pretty good. Yeah. And, and I'm lucky. I have a TV show, I have a radio show and I have calling. So I've sort of got three different elements that can combine for, for the overall. Um, so it, it's an honor. Absolutely. And it's a reflection of the work that you do across a footy season um, but I don't lose myself in those anymore. So a, as you get a little bit older, I, I'm, I'm, I don't let other people judge my self-worth. I, I, I've, I've got a relatively good grasp on that now. Yeah, I know you, you talk about these awards and vanities, but the 2004 Cox Plate Story of the Year. <laughs> no I, more, Max. No, I, I, just, I just want to quickly touch on, can you tell me about um, what this story was? And uh, th- I, My memory is that was the Fields of Omar story, which was a beautiful story about a group of friends, including Brian Martin and Kerry Gillespie. I think Kerry was the heart of that story. I think, if my memory's right, her husband had passed away and... The share in Fields of Omar came along at probably the most heartbreaking moment of her life. And she loved that horse for what it represented to her. And he was a bit of an against-the-odds champion. And he ended up winning it a couple of times and running places on another couple of occasions. So in the storytelling, you are it, it, you are absolutely reliant on your subject and as I said, my memory is Kerry told that story beautifully as to what the horse had meant to her life at, at the most heartbreaking moment. And then I imagine that was on Channel 10 at the time. And it was a it was a, a beautiful story to be able to present. But it owes entirely to Kerry's yeah. experience and her capacity to tell it, which I, I do think back on fondly. Now, I want to have a quick chat about when AFL 360 started with yep. Mark Robertson in 2010. How did that show come about and who bring that idea up and pitched it to you guys? Yep. So Rod Law was the head of Fox footy at the time. 
Uh, and he and I worked on the idea of a show that would have the polar opposites discussing footy. And the original concept was I would essentially be the moderator. I would be the third, I would be the host and there would be two people in, in a political sense, left wing, right wing in the way that they see footy. Yeah. And yeah. once we started to work on Mark Robinson as one, um, it was perfectly clear that I was the counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, and if we put somebody else in, it would be two people of one disposition and Robbo of the other. Yeah. Two people television shows weren't really done at the time, so it was a break in format, but we also wanted it to be to be fresh and to be different, not just another footy show as it arrived. So the, the core of it, and I think it's very true to this day, is can two people who have nothing in common in life other than their passion for football talk about the game every night? And the answer is yes. And what, what it demonstrates, I think, is the fabric of, of Melbourne, and I think footy more broadly, is it's the entree into any conversation. Yeah. If you get into a cab and the driver likes footy, yeah. that's it. Your next 40 minutes is sorted. If you end up in a bar having a drink with someone you haven't met before and they love footy, that's your next three beers sorted. It is that social fabric. So the nub of the idea, and, and it's very true to who we are, we don't have much in common in life other than media and football, uh, but we come together for that nightly conversation around the game with a great sort of sense of passion. Now I want to talk about the Sunday morning show, the outside. Uh, so, yes, yeah, sorry, the outsiders. 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 Sorry, yep. that's right. Yeah, what was this show all about? So Barry Cassidy, who's a great sportsman as well as a great political man, he had pioneered Insiders on the ABC, and when I was there, he came to me. I reckon it was only a year after he'd started Insiders, maybe two at the most. And he said, I reckon we should do this with sport as well. And I've always thought I tell this story against Barry. He wanted a sport show for two reasons. One, he wanted to preview the Melbourne Cup every year. Yeah. He loves the <laughs> Melbourne Cup. And in case Collingwood ever won the premiership, he wanted to show the next morning to bask in the Maggies winning the flag. So we did it. We got it up. I think it took an extra year from the f moment that he pitched the idea to when we got it there. And every year we got to preview the Melbourne Cup and Collingwood won the flag. Into and the next morning yet. he wasn't – I was hosting it at that stage. The next morning <laughs> we had him on down at Victoria Park reveling in the Maggie's 2010 Premiership. And I always thought he brought that to fruition. It was a great thing to be able to do, a serious conversation around the issues of sport that – um, that should be there. Sport means so much to us and to our way of life in Melbourne and in Australia that there should be a platform to have a serious conversation around the issues that are raised within it. Now, I know you've written a book, Black Caviar. I only found this out actually in my research, actually now really wanting to get a hold of it, of the great horse. Oh, I should have um, brought it in for you, Max. <laughs> I've got a few at home. <laughs> now, can you tell me about how, what the experience was like? The experience is different for everyone of writing a book and how long did it take you and things like that? Yeah, so Barry Cassidy was the inspiration for that. Barry wrote a book about uh, a federal election, which I read, and it was really interesting. It was sort of a step-by-step, -step. this is what happened, this is what it meant, and I thought that's a really clever way to do it. And I reckon Black Caviar at that stage had had seven starts, and there was something about her which, which grabbed me from the outset, and I was covering almost all of her races. So by the time she won her 10th race, which was the new market, 
I was starting to make notes and formulate the idea of writing a book. And then I did a function that Peter Moody was the guest of honour at and did a lot of research around Pete and got to know his story and presented his story at the function and thought that's actually the start of the book. So I started to write it and then we took it to the owners of Black Caviar who very generously agreed to participate in it and to give me the access for it. So I wrote most of it. It was after one of the spring carnivals and she probably had um, 21, maybe eight, maybe 17 or 16 or 17 races. I wrote all of that across one summer, Wow! which is as much sat- – probably the most satisfying thing I've done in my time in media was writing the book. I absolutely loved it, lost myself in it. And then would write the chapter of each of her subsequent runs almost in real time in the week after it happened. And then the climax of the book was to go to Royal Ascot and write either the crowning moment or the, you know, it was all on the line at Ascot. So I'd written the the entire book up to that point. And then the last chapter I was supposed to write on the way home. Now you're too young, Max, because this is a little while ago, but Ascot didn't quite go to plan. She did win, but she almost lost. That was the, the sort of, and everyone was a bit shell-shocked in the aftermath and didn't get the full celebration. And Peter Moody disappeared to France and Luke Nolan was castigated by the English press and no one was ready to share what the hell had gone on. So I came back without the last chapter and I said to the publishers, you're just going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait till everybody gets back to Australia and is able to rationalise what happened and then share what it was. And a few weeks later, I went and sat with Peter Moody at Corfe- at his Caulfield office and he told the story about how he nearly didn't run her and she was coming apart at the seams and it was a, a huge risk to send her out there and just the weight that he carried with it. And he didn't tell Luke Nolan any of it. And I rang Luke and said, I need to sit down with you. Can we get a coffee? And he said, I'm... It's going to have to be a beer and you're going to have to tell me what happened. So it took a little bit longer to get all of that information and to write that chapter. We published it in the spring carnival and then she did come back and have three more runs. And one of the best things that can happen in life is you can write a book, which then has additional chapters and you get to republish it. So I wrote four additional chapters at the end to the retirement. And um, my motivation was to, Uh, I was so taken with her that I'm going to share these stories with my grandkids. And the best way to remember it all was to write it all down. Um, So I take great pride in that book and and I'm still close to all of the connections. And uh, I see the owners regularly and they're they're beautiful people who shared a a marvellous experience. How did Craig Cutchison get you across to SEN? Yeah, so I, I, when Craig got his cadetship at the Herald Sun, I was his mentor. So I had started one year before him and it was the buddy (laughs) system, right? So I was his mentor. And in three weeks, he knew so much more about the Herald Sun than I'd learnt across 12 months. So I was incredibly naive and he was very worldly. So we had a great connection there. When he was learning to call footy, we would go into a studio in St Kilda and my wife, Claire, would sit and she would panel while Hutchie and I called and then he got his opportunity at Channel 7 and at Triple M. So he was away. He moved from, uh, he'd moved from 10 to 7. When I, when the opportunity to work at Channel 10 came along before I screen tested, uh, the night before he took me into Channel 7 and, and sat me in a studio like this and explained 
a whole lot of the technicalities around voice projection and um, the camera. And he shared a lot with me that I was able to use and to secure a job. Then we grew apart as time went on. And he set set Croc Media up, which was um, always intriguing and I didn't fully understand it. Then he bought SEN and it was as simple as and as difficult as I should have been under contract at the ABC, but I wasn't. And he rang and said, would you like to come over and host the morning show and call the footy and call the Super Bowl? And I initially knocked it back because I just couldn't work out how I would make my weeks work. Actually, that's when he added the Super Bowl into it. It was the second mm-hmm. approach. And he came to Claire and I, and we, we all know each other incredibly well from when we were young. And his, this is the place that's growing. It is so exciting, this business, the way that it's grown in its footprint, not only in footy, but in radio and more broadly, and everything that I'm passionate about, he is forging forward with. So I get to I have the great privilege of calling Test Cricket here, and doing overseas tours, AFL, which is the lifeblood of everything we do. We have rights to the Spring Carnival. We've just done the Olympics, which in, once the world is through, you know, the travel restrictions will, I imagine, be at the next Olympics. That's our ambition. The Super Bowl. So wherever, wherever everyone in Melbourne lives sport and wherever the big sport is happening, our ambition is to take you there on SEN. So his vision appealed to me enormously. And in the end, it was a very, it was a very simple discussion. I think we're in the fifth year. I think we both share the view that we're just getting started. What's your relationship been like since the early stages um, of being together with Craig Hutchison at the, at the Herald Sun? Yeah, so we, we had a difficult time when I started at 10 and he'd moved to seven over a story, which I carried way too personally for too long and a bit of age and wisdom uh, illuminates these things. So uh, our our relationship sort of fractured briefly and then we just moved in different circles. Uh, I was at the at the ABC and at Fox and he was at at seven and and triple M and AW. So we were in different spheres. Uh, but I consider myself extremely lucky to have been brought back into his sphere to there's nobody in Australian media, never mind sport. There's nobody in Australian media who is forging the path that he is doing. He is boundless in energy. He has huge imagination and he can turn the smallest idea into something meaningful. So I, I remember Winx's last race. I sent him a text message the week before. We just finished calling the footy on a Saturday. I sent him a text and said, Winx is having her last start in Sydney next Saturday. We probably should do something around it and integrate it into our footy coverage. And by the time I came to the office on Monday morning, he had bought the rights. He had organised a pop-up channel for the day. He had built a commentary team. He had secured the box. And I was going to Sydney for an eight-hour broadcast where I would call Winx's last race. <laughs> that, that's, and to work for somebody like that. The magic of Craig Hutchison. Yeah, that's, so that's what I'm in it for. Um, and it gives me the, the full scope to do the stuff that I love. In your first show of Waitley, I believe you interviewed Rod Laver. Yeah, he was my the, first guest. Yes, the day after the Australian Open too. What was that like to discuss with the tennis grade of Australia? So I'd, I'd, this is my name dropping. I'd got to know Rod just a little bit over the previous few years. 
and I worked with him at each Australian Open uh, through ANZ and I I did the function with him that we did each year and I asked him is would you do me the honor of of coming on Monday morning uh, it'll be my first show it'll be straight after and it was Federer had won the title mm. it, he was a beautiful first guest to have and then was gazumped an hour and a half later when we got Roger Federer. <laughs> so my, the thrill of my first day on air was Roger Federer doesn't do radio interviews. Yeah. And the morning after he won the Open, he came on the show and it was um, it was brilliant. I'm indebted to a lot of people for that. But we did a lot of work to make that happen. So what was that like talking to him? And did you have him actually in the studio? No, he was on the phone. He was on the phone, yeah. Uh, and... The you know the immediacy of radio is we, you want the most important person in sport today on your show that that's that's as simple as it can be and the most important person that day was Roger Federer and we got him and it was when I when the Jay who was my producer who taught me so much in the early stages and we've been trying and we didn't know whether it's going to happen he said Roger Federer is on the line and it was just this big fist pump moment and then concentrate on doing the interview properly. Now, I want to have a quick chat about Australian cricket. They took home the Ashes this year. Um, Steve Smith coming back. There was, and Pat Cummins, the new captain, getting the job done. There was a lot of discussion prior to the Ashes as to, um, you know, whether Pat Cummins was the right fit. Um, was he going to be able to get the job done? And, yes, he did. He executed it perfectly. Um, I think there was just that one decision in Sydney where he possibly could have um, declared earlier. But what, what what are your first impressions you've of this? Got a, you've got this, a good future uh, in media, Max, if this. you're already questioning the Australian captain's <laughs> de- declarations because that's one of the great pieces. <laughs> I think Pat's a brilliant <laughs> captain. Yes, he uh, is. I think, I think people knew a long way out that he was going to be uh, the next uh, and it came ahead of time as Tim Payne, this was supposed to be Tim Payne's ashes and a couple of weeks out in um, in dreadful circumstances, uh, he removed himself from the position. He would have been removed had he not done so. So Pat Cummins is thrust in in really difficult circumstances. But he is, he from what I knew, he was a great voice in the dressing room and he had he had authority with the players. So during the fractious period in that middle of that year around the coaching position, Cummins had been sort of a definitive figure and had shown himself to be a great leader. The most exciting part is for all of my life, the Australian captain has been a batter. And the way to lead was to go out and make the century. Ricky Ponting would do it. Start of the series, go out, bat for the day, make the century, set the tone, and then Michael Clark would do it. Well, now we've got a man with the ball who can do it. So there was this, the nervous Nellies were going, well, there's a lot to do when you're a bowler and can you really be the captain? He can set the tone in a ball. He can change the course of a test match with a single delivery, whereas a batter takes five hours to make a century. I think he, I loved his last declaration in Pakistan, which was risky, 350. Yes, it was, yeah. But that was his path to victory. And he believes not only in his bowling group that he knows intimately, but he believes in himself. So the batting captain goes, well, if I make a century here, we'll we'll run down 350. And the bowling captain goes, if this gets sticky, I'll take a wicket. And that's what he does. I think we're going to have great years under Pat Cummins and the first taste of it. The Ashes was rich, but I actually think Pakistan was even more significant. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he's he's every inch a leader and 
it's going to be a thrilling prospect to have a bowling captain rather than the the quintessential batting captain. What are your estimations of uh, Mitchell Swepson? Swepson, sorry, they bring him in. I think it was for that uh, second and third test. Yeah. It was. Um, what do you, where do you see him going um, in the near future? In the he Australian has team? had a hard initiation. Oh, it was so tough for him. I've, yeah, you sit back and you actually feel sorry for him. So I hope he's come through that okay. Um. We will go to uh, Australia. We'll go to Sri Lanka next, and then India. I think India might be the other side of the Australian summer. So he'll play the tests in Sri Lanka in much more friendly conditions, and um, and get to show his wares. And then he will be crucial in India. I think so. Ashton Agar and Mitch Swepson are they're the spinners on the cusp, and I think horses for courses, judgment of captain and coaches to which one it should be. I think. Um, Shane Warne had a rugged start in the same way that Mitch Swepson has. I think he's ready for it. I'd love to see him go and, and boost his confidence in Sri Lanka. And then I think he'll be a critical figure in India. What about someone like Travis Head? We saw him go ahead in the Ashes and make 100 off, I think it was 60-odd balls. And then he came in in that first ODI and he made another 100. Yeah. Um, He's been looking in fantastic form. I know certainly in that test series in Pakistan, there was a lot of doubts in the media about him. Um, what do you feel? How do you feel about him playing higher up in that order, or especially if um, Australia do get in batting trouble, um, say within the first ten overs or five overs of the game, um, two wickets fallen, Travis Head comes in at four, and, and you preserve Steve Smith for five. Um, maybe in the future, but not necessary yet. So the. I think the best example is Hobart, where Australia lost early wickets, heads in, and he changes the course of the test match. Uh, in in such a profound way, he made runs in such a hurry and took the initiative away from England, who were finally on top in a match. It, he He's an astonishing player. Like, for all the world, he's a he, white he ball attacks, cricketer. Yeah. yeah, in a red ball environment. He wouldn't have been in my Ashes lineup. Yeah, uh, I would have gone with Kawaja in the middle order rather than Head, but and Head's the player of the series, so it, I think he is indicative of the evolution of Test batting, where I would have grown up at a time where um, defence stoicism, and then you make your runs when the oppor- opportunity presents. The infiltration of white ball cricket into Test cricket is attack, 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 and Head. Head personifies that. I, sometimes I think it's mad, but I'm that's the way I used to think about Test cricket. So he is driving it in a totally different direction, and that's how he's played his his Shield cricket for South Australia. So he changed the course of at least one Test match in the Ashes and probably two. The century that he made in the I, I think he's a fifty over cricketer. So when he was in there to open, and he makes a century, and then he makes a ninety in the next game. I hope he's in the one-day team from here on. And I actually think he could end up being the captain of the one-day team after Aaron Finch. And he speaks so well too. Yeah. So a hugely admiring of him. And I think he's a transformative figure in the way the game has evolved. Um, Now, I want to have a chat now about um, AFL and St Kilda particularly. I'm a massive (laughs) Saints fan. Um, As you know, you're Geelong, Jared. Um, There's been a lot of discussion um, about Max King and last year and how his goal kicking wasn't the greatest, also with Jack Higgins. Now Max King's come out in these last two games. I think he had four. He had four against the Dockers, 
and then uh, another four against Richmond in the last quarter. How do you see him progressing? Um, and I heard on Andy and Gazy downstairs earlier today talk, talking to Dermot Brereton about um, how when is that point for him where he can um, be the be the X factor in a game. Yeah. Um, he's already changing a game, but how can he go from that being a twenty to thirty minute from a twenty to thirty minute spurt for him to an in, to changing an entire game? Yeah. So I think we know enough that you have to be patient with your key position players. So there's a an eagerness that the high draft picks pan out quickly, and they do in the midfield, but they don't when they're key position players. You have to wait and let them play their game. So I could take this back to Tom Hawkins, who was uh, regarded as a, a prodigy. He goes father son, and it takes him a few years to find his way in the game. And during that time, people are starting to doubt whether it will ever happen. So I, Max King, I imagine, is going through that. But we have seen in consecutive weeks he has he's changed the course of games within a quarter. So that gives you a hint of what he's going to be. And now, as those who have been that figure are talking about him being the dominant forward in a game for a period of time and thinking that he could be in the, the company of the likes of Buddy. So that that's probably the extreme end of the conversation. I think he's going to be an excellent forward for a long period of time. And we will see these moments right throughout this year. And then hopefully that evolves again next year. And I imagine by the year after, that's when he's ready to be the number one forward in the game. And cross fingers and hope that he doesn't have bad luck like his brother Ben has with the knee injury. And just hope that he can soar to his full potential. Because when those lads were coming through their draft year, they were foretold these will be two great players of the future and the King brothers. And I still believe that will happen. We just have to be a bit patient with them. Do you see Ben King coming through to St Kilda in the next five, 10 years? Uh, and I don't know. Is that So I like that he has re-signed with the Gold Coast to give the Suns the opportunity to be the club that he hopes they can be. And now that there's actually hope for him. You know, they've, they've got a great-looking roster. Noah Anderson's in terrific form. I think Isaac Rankin came back last week or he's coming back this week. And Matt Rowe's in superb form um, after last season with an injury. So, you know, how do you see the Gold Coast Suns? Yeah, so Tom Lynch, I think, is a good example. He gave the Suns eight years and then went, I don't think this is going to pan out and I'm not prepared to spend my entire career here waiting for it to happen. So he chose to go to Richmond and he's had premiership success. So that that felt pretty right to me. So this iteration of the Suns has to make it happen to be worthy of those players staying. So they invest in it, drive the standards, build the culture, and then it has to come to fruition or those players will get to a point and go, I'm not prepared to spend my whole career here waiting for it to happen when I'm in demand elsewhere. So I suspect the question will answer itself is if this group drive it and become a finals team and become premiership contenders, they will all stay together. If if the history of the Gold Coast is going to be, it never quite amounts to anything, then I feel like at a certain point in their careers, they'll go, nope, this is not my dream. I'm going to go and chase it elsewhere. So I think that I think we will know the answer by the Suns trajectory. Now, I want to have a quick chat about um, your Geelong Cats um, now, it's been a question over the last few years. Is it now or never for the Cats? Uh, it's always now or never for the Cats, it seems to me. Uh, so I just went and watched the LA Rams win the Super Bowl on the strategy of we are bringing in premier players. 
they hadn't taken a draft pick since I knew exactly, but I, I don't think they'd taken a first round draft pick since 2016 and they don't have a first round draft pick for the next three years. They were bringing in premier players into their key positions. They're not. They're not winning for in five to ten years. They're winning now. They're winning now. So they they were building their roster to win now, and they just won. And they'll build their roster next year to win now, and they either will or they won't. So, I think that's a really modern way that sport has taken. I think Geelong has um, defied gravity of the system. They won their flags. The last of them was in twenty eleven. I think they've had one year where they've missed the finals. They keep making preliminary finals. They keep putting themselves forward. They really they missed flags only because they hit the team of the era in Richmond, who were just better than them. And Dustin Martin took games away from them. I don't think you can second guess that. Uh, and they they've they they enroll to give themselves a chance. As a supporter, I'm thrilled with that. I don't really understand the opposite view from Geelong fans. Is, so you want to go and spend years at the bottom for the promise of what? Mm. Like, Just making the top eight. Di- you yeah. can disappear forever down the yeah. bottom. My goodness, we've seen that. So, uh, no, this is a modern way of thinking about it. Concede nothing, build a list that you think can can stay in contention and then develop a style of play. So I'm really encouraged by the, the change in the way Geelong is playing. I was there the other night when Cameron kicked six. You know, that looks all right to me. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to have a quick chat to you um, once again about the Carlton Blues and Melbourne Demons. Now, starting off with Carlton, there was a lot of, uh, they were, I guess, under a lot of pressure um, at the start of this year was um, Brett, is it Brett Boss, Michael Boss. Uh, Michael sorry, Boss, yeah. yeah. I get confused with <laughs> those two guys. Um, was he going to come in and was he going to be the superstar coach that everyone wanted? I know Carlton's, they've started with a 3 no start to the year. They've shocked a lot of people. Have they shocked you, Jared? Uh, have they shocked me? No, they've pleased me. Um, I'm excited for them. I think, so I'm a little bit different on the idea of, I don't think there's any hype around Carlton. I think there's joy and fun around Carlton. It's fun to see Carlton as a good team again. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, there's wild exaggeration and, um, and a lot of playfulness around the idea is, oh, we're starting to book finals tickets and we've cancelled plans for September. I don't think that has filtrated into the team at all. They are a team who is learning their way. They're learning something new. They're enjoying it. I think there's a very real chance that in previous years they lose at least a couple of the first three that they've won in the challenges that they've faced. So they are maturing. I'm thrilled to see Patrick Cripps back to his best. I'm a big believer in Cripps. I never bought into the idea that he was clapped out in his mid-20s. He's fresh and he's got support. Uh, and I really like Michael Voss. I loved him as a player. He didn't. He took the wrong job at the Lions at the wrong time. He went and served a full apprenticeship and learnt all about coaching. I think it's it's a great hiring. So I hope, I think they'll be a heap of fun as the year unfolds and they will have their moments. They'll have their foibles, um, but they're electrifying to watch. So all power to them. And it's not dissimilar to the rise of Melbourne, who in 2018 were a heap of fun. They were the most intoxicating team to call. And then it all fell apart and they progressively put it back together and then they achieve their level of excellence where they spend the whole of last year as the best time and get a uh, best team and, and get their reward at the end. So um, it, it's these are these have been excruciatingly long and painful rebuilds that fans I think will have imagined got to the point of despair 
but to see and to feel the joy that Melbourne people got out of that drought-breaking premiership, um, I think, yeah, every team that has suffered so long in the wilderness, their supporters should get to feel that moment again one day. So can Melbourne do it again? I mean, yeah. their running patterns are obviously um, next level. You see the handballs um, and handball receives from the likes of Will Langton and Christian Petrarca. Um, do you actually believe that they can um, take the top of the ladder and win yeah. this again? I think they will win another premiership in this stretch. Yeah. So I don't know whether they'll go back to back because we would have felt like Richmond in 2018 were the best team all year and they got their preliminary final wrong and Collingwood knocked them out. Yeah. And then they win the next two. So I think Melbourne have a sustained period where they can win more than one premiership. They have great pieces. Like they've got more pieces than you're probably entitled to because they had that real dip and they get Pickett and they get Jackson. Um, they believe they've got a tremendous system. They now are comfortable in being the best team. Um, yeah, so I, I think they will win another premiership in the next couple of years. Just quickly on Australian basketball. Yeah. I know it's not. You might know more about Australian it's, it's basketball not, than I do. It's not your forte. I know that. But, I know um, a lot about under nines basketball yeah. <laughs> at the moment. Now, I want to have a quick chat to you about the Boomers. Do you see them? They've got the Commonwealth Games coming yep. up. Do you see them winning um, another medal, possibly at the 2024 Paris Olympics? I think they, they will be disappointed if they don't. Yeah. A little bit depends on who's with them. Um. So Paddy Mills was such a source of national pride and inspiration in the way that he took on that Boomers campaign. That was beautiful. And Brian Gorgian, so they got everything right in that moment in time. And that bronze medal is worthy of any gold medal that Australia's won in recent times at an Olympics. So, you, But you have to have the players on the floor. So they won't lose that spirit. And they belong to something greater. They're not just a team who goes to the Olympics and, and has a dip at winning a medal. They belong to whatever, yeah, whatever this Boomers is now will be passed on. Paddy Mills will make sure that it gets passed on. So who will be on the floor in 2024? Well, we can pretty much guarantee it's going to be Josh Giddy. Will it be Ben Simmons? He's, he's always under question. He's got to get back and play a game for Brooklyn first. Yeah. So... You've got these potential A-grade NBA pieces, which should keep you in contention. So I'm a huge admirer of what they just did, and it will give them a chance. And then, yeah, is who who will be on the floor if they are if they are big time NBA players? Then it gives you a massive chance, and they no longer have the burden of trying to win that first medal. And I think that will. I just think. That that does that all in all sport that I've experienced, it's a burden to break through, and then once you've done it, you're sort of a bit freer. You carry it a little bit more lightly. So I've recently had Kate Campbell on the podcast. Yes, yes. Um, and she told me a couple of stories. Um, so a lot of people thought that two two thousand twenty one Tokyo, um, was possibly going to be her last year. She had two golds and a uh, and I think it was a bronze or a silver. Um, and then I said to her, you know, are you Gone for 2024 because now she's taking a six month break, going to travel Europe and things like that. She said, Yeah, I'm going for 2024. She's like, she's like I hope that's not going to be my last one. She's like, I'm going as far as I can. <laughs> but the story she has, I mean, growing up in South Africa, she had an encounter with a hippo, like face to face. Oh, it's like, Oh my goodness. And then she said, There was, she goes, I came home 
and I'd lost in the heat in the 2018 Commonwealth Games to Bronte or the semi-final or finals or something like that. She goes, I got silver, she got gold. And I came back and there was a guy at the supermarket um, centre and he goes, you're one of the Campbell sisters, aren't you? And she goes, yeah, I am. And then he goes, are you Kate or Bronte? And she goes, I'm Kate. And he goes, ah, he goes, you're the one that used to be good and now your sister's good. <laughs> That's rough, isn't and, it? Yes, and she's like, she's like, oh, she's like, she's like, oh, I was just, she was like, I was in a bit of shock there. She's like, so I was determined to prove him wrong, um, for in that period of time in the yeah. 2021. I Tokyo. admire Kate so much, Max. Mm. So I called her race in Rio when it all went wrong, and I'll I'll never forget it. She she rocked on the blocks. And when she entered the water, she would have felt like she was going to be disqualified. Mm. She was the hottest of hot favourites. And at an Olympics, those favourites don't lose. And she swam panicked. And it it came completely undone and she didn't meddle. And it took her a couple of years to tell that story. But I I was was there poolside. I saw it and in the moment knew exactly what had happened. And she told that story and it was just, uh, you can, you can absolutely imagine how it unfolded. And she carried that with her for a long time. So she has to wait five years to get back to the Olympics, carry that and has no control over whether somebody is faster than her by that stage. And I remember in the lead up to Tokyo, uh, I was talking to Adam Gilchrist about the, the burden of what this is and having, so she had control over her own preparation, but it turned out that within her own team, there was somebody faster than her, Emma McKeon. And that's what happened on the night. Yeah. But Kate gets her crowning moment in the medley relay. So she gets the bronze in the hundred, which is a great achievement. But in the medley relay, when she goes into the pool, she's behind and she has no right to swim over the top and win. And that's the heart of a champion. And it was it was the most magnificent moment to have lived part of her career and to watch her be able to do that. She takes you inside her life, though, too. She, incredibly yeah. generous. And I think she'll be a great study for future generations around how to deal with the stresses of it and the anxiety. And she, she's going to be – she's not only very generous, I think she's going to be a great advocate in that space. So – I admire her as much as any Australian sportsman, I must say. Now, Jared, I know you've got AFL Nation tonight, this yes. Thursday. I could talk um, for hours to you, Max. <laughs> hours. So could I. Um, now, I'd just like to quickly finish off with what what's your best advice um, to anyone who wants to be a journalist and be successful like yourself, and yeah. for me too? Find the job you want and work relentlessly to give yourself the best chance to get it. Because if you feel like this is your line of work... It is, it's the best job in the world, Max. When I was a kid, if you'd said to me, you'll get to host a footy show on TV, you'll get to call all the sports that you love, uh, and they'll give you a radio show every day yeah. that, that's got your yeah. name on it. Like, oh, how good would that be? Yeah. And that's, that is the privilege of what I get to do. So find what you want and work relentlessly at it. I'm not a big believer in... Uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, it's not for everybody, but I'm not a big believer in work-life balance is if you love something as much as I do, just give all of yourself to it and chase it with everything because it's the greatest job in the world. So my dad said to me when I was a kid, 
we were sitting at the footy. And I don't know why he said it. I've never really asked him. He said, imagine if they paid you to be here. And that's the seed of, of my career. They mm-hmm. pay me to be at the great sporting events of the world and to share them with you. Like that's, I'll never work a day in my life, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jared, so much for coming on the podcast today and putting aside, you know, an hour, an hour and a half or so of your time to come on and have a chat. It's been an absolute honour for me to have you on. My God, Max, it'll be the longest podcast that's ever gone up. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done another hour yeah. with you. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. Stay, stay tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEM.